Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kate Ballou, and my co-host, Kristen Lissenby. Hello, Kate. How are you today? Hi, Kristen. So happy to be here and to see your face. Yes, same to you. (laughs) Yes. So I know we're recording this, um, you know, a bit in the future here, but when this airs, Samhain will be right around the corner. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what you're doing to honor the Witch's New Year. Yeah, podcasting as a form of portal work, huh? Time travel. (laughs) Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really do have some some altar building plans that I've been thinking about, just really kind of longing to both honor and communicate with my grandparents who departed um, earlier this spring. So maybe a little bit of a dumb supper or just, you know, kind of sitting with the altar for a bit, having having a glass of wine or something with those that I've loved who have passed on. Um, but, you know, I really do love some debaucherous New York City Halloween festivities as well and have some costume ideas brewing. So stay tuned there. Ooh, I can't <laughs> wait to see. What about you? Uh, well, like we said, I know we have like a little bit of time to decide. Um, but I don't know. I'm mainly focusing on gratitude right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the book that I co-created alongside our summer guest, Caitlin Barone, arrived mm-hmm. much earlier than expected. So, yay. Yes. Um, and I feel like doing something to honor Little Witch House Samhain Supper at Samhain just, like, feels so right and so good. Um, and so, like you're saying, like, dumb suppers are totally on my mind right now. Mm-hmm. Like a virtual one um, with Caitlin or with you or some other internet friends. I'm in. Yeah, I know we joked about that in season one, um, but it's still on my mind. Well, let's do it. Let's plan on it now. And yes. I just I can't wait for my copy to arrive. Yes, me too. So what is our listener question for today? Yeah, so Tila reached out and asked us, how do you get started in energy work and how do you know that it's working? So this is a great question. Um, I just want to start by saying that there are just so many different lineages and practices of energy work. So my first advice would just be to, you know, do a little research and see what speaks to you. You know, there are Reiki studies, there's chakra work, there's breath work or other somatic practices, journeying, drum work, body work. Um, And this will all kind of depend on the kind of energetic support that you feel most called to practice. So maybe this is something that you already have a skill set for, like drumming or massage. Um, And there are just so many beautiful books written on these practices. So I think that looking for teachers who you can trust, who have a really good mixture of lived experience and education, I think 
that these teachers are so important. Um, make sure to look for practitioners whose values align with yours and, and you know, to just really look outside of just social media in my experience. So that can be a great place to first come to somebody's work. So, you know, look for folks in your community locally. Maybe if, if you're more supported in a virtual environment, head there? You know, are they trauma-informed? Who taught them? How do they facilitate and hold spaces? And then, you know, just take a workshop or two and just really feel into it and listen to your intuition and your own energy. And as you learn and grow, you'll develop the tools and teaching to like really lean into this and to trust it for yourself. And I think that also just giving yourself the time and the space because learning a new skill can take such a long spacious, beautiful time to develop. And it's really important to give give yourself that time to grow and, and to learn. What do you think, Kristen? I'm just going to second everything you just said right there. Um, and I know people hate to hear it, but it's so true that, you know, I think when it's working, you'll know that it's working. Um, so just trying, you know, different techniques and practices until you find the one that speaks to you kind of like loud and clear. Mm -hmm. Um and I'm just like a big fan of breath work, which I know you mentioned uh, for anyone, but especially those new to energy work and might be struggling with feeling energy if that's what they're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, additional listener question. Kristen wants to know our favorite herbal teas really quickly. Mm, normally, I would mention Go-To Cola, which is an adaptogen that I love. But mm. right now, I'm really into jasmine, like borderline addicted right now. Um, so yeah, jasmine tea right now. What about you? You know, I'm just going to have to say nettle. Mm, I should have known. Well, I'm <laughs> teleporting you a massive bushel of nettle because it grows everywhere here and I can never use it all. And now listeners, I'd like to introduce today's very special guest, Asia Suler. Asia is a writer, teacher, earth intuitive, and ecological philosopher who lives in the folds of the Blue Ridge Mountains. She is the founder of One Willow Apothecaries, an Appalachian-grown company that offers handcrafted herbal medicines and educational experiences in herbalism, animism, ancestral healing, and earth-centered personal growth. Asia has guided over 20,000 students in 70-plus countries through her immersive online programs. With her writings and teachings, Asia helps people embrace their own unique medicine through a joyful engagement with the natural world. Mirrors in the Earth is her first book. In this discussion, we wind and weave our way through earthly mirrors and portals. Asia skillfully brings in silliness— the joy and relationship of being with the plants, discussions of animism, hawthorns, and intuition, and ultimately the blessings of healing through self-acceptance. Asia joined us from her home outside of Asheville. Welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kristen Lizenby. And I'm Kate Ballou. 
Today, we have a very special guest with us. Welcome, Asia Suler. Thank you so much for joining us today, Asia. Oh, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. So to start things off, we love to ask our guests about their big three in astrology. So would you mind sharing your sun, moon, and rising signs? I am a Cancer sun, Leo rising, and Taurus moon. Which mm-hmm. at some point I looked it up and Meryl Streep has the same setup. So I feel blessed. Wow. It's <laughs> amazing. A national treasure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you share a bit about yourself and your work in your own words? Sure. So uh, I, my background is as an herbalist. Uh, and and over the years, the, my work has evolved. And, and at this point now, I call myself more of a earth intuitive. Uh, I'm also a writer, a, a teacher, and an ecological philosopher. And a lot of what I do is help people connect to the living world and through that connection, really begin to see and understand themselves and the unique gifts that they bring to this world. So I teach a variety of programs online and in person, and my book, Mirrors in the Earth, just recently came out into the world. And so that's been a really exciting moment for me because writing has just been such a big way in which I connect with people and and translate what it is I receive from the earth. So yeah, it's been a, a, a beautiful thing to come to fruition. Mm. I would love to read a few lines from the introduction of your book, if that's okay with you, and share that with our listeners. Um, Yeah, absolutely. So many of us assume that if we want to change the world, we must first change ourselves. But this book proffers the belief that self-acceptance is the missing piece to healing. Only when we approach ourselves with compassionate understanding can we begin to access the latent energy, ideas, innovations, and revelations that will bring us back into communion with the earth. When we begin to live from our original beauty instead of the wounds that mire us in self-doubt, we bring the undeniable power of our creativity back into alignment with the wider dream of the world." End quote. And then later in that paragraph, self-compassion is a gift for this world. It's just so beautiful. Um, and can you speak a little bit about self-compassion and, and studying and working with the natural world? So when I was in my late teens, I was diagnosed with a chronic pain condition called vulvodynia. And at the time I, I was in college and I was dealing with yeah, a lot, a lot of pain <laughs> and a lot of struggle, both, both, you know, physically and, and emotionally. And the, the way that I dealt with that pain was to go outside. And anyone who's ever experienced any kind of chronic illness or pain normally knows that one of the, one of the things that comes along with that is often feeling invisible. And it was really outside with nature where I, I felt seen. I felt held. I I felt hope. You know, at the time I had been told that this this pain condition wasn't curable. It was something I would likely live with for the rest of my life. And spending time with the living world, it gave me this sense of possibility, this sense that that even though this is was perceived to be a dead end by the doctors I was visiting, that there's always this 
this openness in nature for this ability to heal. And I, I would see this when a, you know, a frozen rut would, would heal over with chickweed in the spring or a flood that, that ravaged a, a field would just bring new silt for, for nourishment come the growing season. And so I ended up actually being able to heal this, this chronic pain condition. But a lot of the, a lot of the um, strength that I had to heal it came from this relationship with the living world and the awareness that the earth is, is constantly meeting us with messages of benevolence and support. And one of the things that I think as humans we struggle with the most and that is, is often involved with all kinds of health issues and was certainly the case for me is is self-judgment. And the thing that Earth was saying to me over and over and over again in, in every phase of my life, not just in this phase, but in every phase of my life has been that I am accepted for who I am. I am loved for who I am. And that when I return to this place of self self-compassion, that that's when I'm able to access the not only the healing that's possible for me, but the gifts I'm here to bring to this world. You know, we are a part of nature. We're not separate. And the living world wants us to return to the fold, wants us to come back into relationship with the earth because that's how we were designed. That's why we're here. We have really profound gifts to bring to this world as human beings. We have uh, the ability to be incredible shapers and movers and, and to work on behalf of the earth to create more beauty and diversity. And so in this way, the earth is very invested in us learning self-compassion and embracing these, these, these delivered messages of comfort and support because healing is possible, not only for us personally, but for the wider world. And we each have a very important role to play. And so for me, this was how I first started receiving these messages and I ended up deciding to go to school for herbalism and, and, you know, that's where that part of my journey started to evolve. I moved down from New York city to the, the mountains of North Carolina, but every step of the way, as I evolved, the, though the message evolved, it also remained the same. And I think that it's something that the earth deeply wants all of us to hear that it is not just a side journey in in the overall arc of this time of healing on this planet that learning learning self-compassion and releasing self-judgment um, is not secondary to that overall healing journey it's at it's at its heart mm. and so i know that you speak a little bit about micah and micah's messages in the intro to your book but do you remember like maybe the first plant message that you received in your life Gosh, that would be that'd be hard because I feel like I definitely, when I was younger, was tuned in in a certain way, but mm-hmm. I also, you know, wasn't taught that that was something that was real, <laughs> and mm-hmm. so a lot of those those messages sort of came and went. But I do remember I 
there was a willow tree that was planted for me when I was born in our backyard. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a, a a really suburban environment of a row of duplexes, and we had this little backyard, and in the bottom of this little backyard, this willow tree was planted, and it was my solace, my safe space, that tree. And I would climb up into her branches with my journal and, you know, write poetry and lean against her heartwood. And, you know, I think if if I were to sort of go back and and remember that time, I think the message that I always felt when I was with her was this message of no matter what heaviness you're carrying or you're dealing with, there there is always the ability to put it down and and feel free again. And it was like, no matter what I was dealing with, if I climbed up into her branches and just like laid there closer to the sky, I felt lighter. I, I felt like the, the worries that weighed me down um, could, could dissipate, could be lifted. And so I think there was this, this aspect of just remembering like my essential self, this idea of, of remembering that that no matter what I go through, there's a, a part of me that remains unchanged. And that is, that's the part of me that the the living world is always reflecting back. And I, I you know, I, I probably could not have put that into words when I was a child, but that was the feeling sense of, of being with this willow tree. And, you know, when I got older and, and especially when I was dealing with chronic pain and I started interacting more with nature, I didn't know very many plant names, like I, I wasn't, I wasn't an herbalist at that point. I, I wasn't studying botany in school. I was an English major. And so I, you know, I, I would go out into nature, not knowing any names of plants. And yet I would still have these profound experiences of, of feeling held, of receiving messages of, of comfort and wisdom and support. And over and over again, this message that I belonged, which uh, is such a potent thing to to feel, and I think it's it's something I like to remind people of because sometimes it feels like there's this gate, or like there's a gatekeeper. Like if I don't know the name of that plant, or if I can't ID this tree, then I don't deserve to be in contact. That you know, there's a wall here, and it's not true because the reality is that even the names that we use, right? These are these are recent creations, so. I like to say that plant has has their own name for themselves and maybe that's the name that you will get and and you will learn and just like you can have an amazing interaction with a stranger on the subway without ever knowing their name or anything about them the same is true for plants in the living world. In your book you actually um shared a story about an experience you had with a maple tree and I really loved it. Um would you mind sharing that story? with our listeners? Yeah. So that was, this was at the time when I was in college and I knew very few plant names, but I did know enough to know that this was a maple leaf. <laughs> so I could ID this maple tree and <laughs> I would visit this tree every day. So I would do this, this walk and the, which sort of arced around a, a nearby golf course. And I would visit this tree sort of on the edge. And it was a tree that clearly other students visited because it would often have like broken branches and places on it where people were climbing and, um, you know, just 
just you know having having fun being with this tree and but i would i would go with like pieces of of leather and try to bind up the the broken branches and i would bring gifts and i just felt such a connection to this tree it was it was my my safe space and my my sit spot and and one day i was walking down the trail and i felt what i can really only describe as this big ball of energy bound down the trail like straight into my chest almost like a like a puppy greeting you in the the full throttle of a happy homecoming and it was so visceral that the, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up and i actually looked around for another person or a dog i was like something is happening here and i realized in this sort of head to toe wave that it was the maple tree that the the tree knew i was coming and was sending out this wave of greeting and i just to this day it still gives me chills because it was something i i wasn't expecting but it was something that that just it was this affirmation of something i had felt which was this deep relationship with this being um and and this awareness that we had a connection and a knowing and so you know, I, I remember I started crying then when I when I walked up to the tree because I often felt very alone at that time in my life, and to know that that I was being seen in this way and welcomed in this way just meant everything in the world. I love that story, mm-hmm. and I love to think too about just the relationship building as kind of the entry way into that instead of the sort of like I don't know more clinical way of building relationship. Do you have um, any sort of like recommendations for folks who are looking for that kind of entry point into yeah, you know, into the earth? As I said, like I went on to study herbalism in a clinical setting and and um, to work with people in that kind of setting in in consultation and in teaching and and what I found is that even even in a more you know clinical. Uh, healing space, having that relationship made the medicine work better. (laughs) Um, And so what I would often tell people Mm. then and what I still tell people now is to find a sit spot somewhere nearby you in nature where you can connect with one being in particular. So this could be a tree, a stone, um, a creek, just one, one being that you can go to be with ideally every day, but if not every day, you know, once a week, just to make it a practice to go and sit with this being in nature and to let go of agenda and just be open to spending time. You know, this this aspect of quality time is important. And I think a lot of people sometimes feel like connecting with plants feels like mystic or esoterical, but it's really the same way you would connect with another human. You know, if you wanted to get to know a human more, and especially if you wanted to get to know a human that was part of of a, a new culture for you, maybe a culture you hadn't connected with yet, you would, you would spend quality time with them. You would sit with them. You would listen, you know, uh, you would introduce yourself. And this is something I often tell people that, that people then will often feel silly doing, but that it's important to to sit with this being in the living world and literally introduce yourself out loud. Say your name, you know, where your people come from, where you're living, you know, why you're there that day. And 
you know, not only is this just respectful and and helpful to creating relationships, but it also helps repattern our brains because we have been taught that you introduce yourself to, you know, sentient people, right? And so when you introduce yourself to a plant in that way, you are reprogramming your brain to see plants and beings in nature as, as people. And, you know, I also say that that feeling of silliness is actually a good feeling if, if you're experiencing that when you embark upon Upon this this sit spot um, practice and, and introducing yourself to a plant, because silliness is actually how we play with cultural norms. When children are little and and they first mm. you know sort of engage in the delight of silliness, what they're doing is they're able to recognize what is the what is the normal way of things, and then they turn it on its head. So they might take a shoe and put it on their head. And they think that's hilarious, right? And they think it's hilarious because they know <laughs> in in their family or in the culture that they're in, shoes go on the feet. And so when you feel silly, what you're feeling actually is the sense of going up against these cultural norms that you've been handed. And so the invitation here is instead of feeling silly and feeling ashamed, to feel silly and find a sense of humor in it. To, to feel silly and find a way to delight in that silliness and, and know that, that that sense of being silly will fade, that it's not going to be something you feel every single time, but it, it, it is actually an important feeling to encounter because it means that you are doing really profound work, not only in your own psyche, but in the culture at large to flip the script. You reference animism, in the Florida Inner World section um, of your book. And in there it reads, quote, if we want to see the world around us return to life, we must first be able to recognize all the artisans that give it a life. And so I was just curious if you could share a little bit about animism for our listeners who may not be familiar with that phrase and also just your perspectives and experiences um, with an animistic lens. Animism is the heritage belief system of humankind. That's how I describe animism. Animism is the belief system that every, everyone, everything, every being is animated with its own sentience, soul, and personality here on this planet. So from an animistic viewpoint, you know, that tree would be their own person. So would that creek, so would that stone, but so would all things. Like, so so would the necklace that you're wearing or the car that you're driving in. So from this animistic viewpoint, everything in the world is alive and animated by spirit. Um, and, and as such has their own individuality and personality. And so what that means is that your experience here on earth is defined by your relationships, by your connections to the world around you. So an animistic viewpoint is a relational viewpoint, sees everything in, in this lens of relationship. And, um, you know, sometimes in, in the past, the word shamanistic has been used to describe animism, but, you know, the word shaman comes from a very particular culture, the uh, Tungustic, the Evenki people um, in Siberia speak a Tungustic language. And 
that that word was taken by European anthropologists and sort of applied around the world to traditional cultures and land-based cultures that often had what we would describe as animistic belief systems. Um, so I, I just put point that out because some people might be more familiar with with that word. But the the concept is similar, the idea that that everything is alive and animated by its own spirit and sentience. And, you know, there are many cultures around the world that still operate entirely within an animistic frame point or, or that is a very large uh, part of the culture to this day. For example, Japanese culture um, is animistic. And so, you know, it might be one reason why a lot of people, you know, love Japanese films or, you know, um, uh, yeah, Japanese TV shows, because you, you can feel more of that, that element of that awareness of that aliveness. And so my, my experience with the living world was one of just naturally coming back into this awareness of animism. And, you know, I think anytime we spend time in nature, we kind of just default to that worldview because I think it's actually just the the natural way our brains work as humans. You know, children before they're taught anything different, they are animus. They they don't make a distinction between alive and not alive. You know, like their stuffed animal is a person with a backstory, and and they have a relationship to the stuffed animal. And you know, that that toaster on the TV is is also a person. And and so we really have to be taught as children that this isn't true, right? So you know, from from my perspective, we're all born animus. All of our ancestors were animus at some point. And so it, it, it can take a little bit of work, but at, at the end of the day, it's sort of natural to come, come back to this viewpoint. And I think it's a viewpoint um, and a belief system that is compatible with, you know, whatever, whatever religion or, or, or spirituality um, you, you identify with that, that I, I, I believe this, this belief system, it's not its own religion. It's, it's really just a way of seeing the world. And, you know, that, that chapter in particular about being in, in Florida, I was recounting a, a powerful realization that I had had paddling the Florida Springs. So this is in North Florida. If anyone's ever visited North Central Florida, it, it's a paradise unto itself. A lot of people think of Florida and they think, you know, air conditioners and, and strip malls and Disney World. But but there are parts of Florida, wild Florida, that are just um, truly stunning in, in their beauty and their, their pristine nature. And I was paddling one of these places, these clear spring-fed rivers that arise out of the limestone and, and flow for miles and are normally, you know, aqua blue with vegetation hanging over them and manatees swimming in the warmth. And and I just had this moment of of deep realization where I realized that I had been I had been resisting this this permission to be in my own world because I thought it was selfish. And I thought my role here is to put myself in other people's shoes and to step out of my own viewpoint. And yet I looked around me at this niche ecology existing, you know, within this larger landscape of, of development and, and strip malls and thought the world cherishes niche ecologies. The world cherishes each individual being in their own 
world because it's only by being in our own world that we fulfill the the reality of this planet, which is this reality of of uh, this animistic um, swirl of relationship and and creation. And so, you know, how can one individual create with another if you're not fully within yourself and your own being and your own viewpoints and you know, to to disparage being in your own world would be to disparage yourself as a as a part of this animistic whole. And so, from this viewpoint, it is um, it's an animistic way of thinking to allow yourself permission to be in your own world and to value that own inner world. So, I would love to follow that thread and and talk a little bit about boundaries and sensitivity. Um, I love that you touched on this uh, also in Garden Edges and Paradise on Earth in that first essay. I also live off the L train in Brooklyn. And so to see you speak about the magic that you found and cultivated here on North 8th Street, that brought me like a lot of joy um, to read. But can you speak a little bit about your journey as a highly sensitive person and what gardening taught you about your inner world and about boundaries? The term highly sensitive person was coined by Dr. Elaine Aaron, and it, it, highly sensitive people have a, a extra sensitive nervous system. So it's, it's a physiological trait in about 20% of the population, and normally high sensitivity can look like a lot of different things. It can look like sensitivity to bright lights, loud sounds, um, but it also can, can look like being extra sensitive or capable in terms of, you know, tuning into the non-physical world, to the subtle realms, um, to having access to creativity or just, you know, being more perceptive and, and noticing the small details of things around you. A lot of highly sensitive people when they're young, uh, especially in, in this culture, are often told that, you know, they're too sensitive, that they're too shy, uh, that something about them is non-functional because, you know, sensitivity can often lead to shutdown and overwhelm because the reality of being a highly sensitive person is that you have this really big open nervous system that's taking in, and it's actually taking in more sensory detail than it would otherwise. And because of this, it's easy to get overwhelmed by your environment, by social interactions, things like that. Uh, and so because your way of, of being might be a little bit different than sort of the the fast-paced, high-intensity, high-achievement-oriented aspects of, of Western culture and American culture in particular, that you know, from a young age, a lot of highly sensitive people are, are codified as, as, yeah, not as being, um, as, as maybe not being up to task or, yeah, as just being like overly sensitive. And, and yet this is a really powerful nervous system trait and it exists in many species around the world for a reason because highly sensitive people are very attuned to their environments. They have this ability to see things that other people don't. And I've worked with so many highly sensitive people throughout my career and have seen firsthand that highly sensitive people tend to be, you know, incredibly empathic, incredibly intuitive, um, deeply connected to the unseen worlds, very creative, 
negative. And, and all that being said, it's a healing process to come back to this space of valuing yourself and your sensitivity and not seeing it as a hindrance. And one of the things that's really necessary on that, that journey of coming back home to yourself and embracing the beauty of your sensitivity is learning how to hold boundaries. A lot of sensitive and empathic people from a very young age are told that their role actually is to not have boundaries, <laughs> to be that person who, you know, whatever it is, is, is going to be the, the sounding board in their family or the, you know, the, the negotiator or the, the person who's there to take on whatever other people are feeling. And so it's, it's a really big shift in our thinking to think, okay, actually I need to have boundaries because when I don't have boundaries, uh, I literally cannot keep myself within my own sphere. And that's something that I say about boundaries for to highly sensitive people, especially if they're struggling with this idea of boundaries, is it's not always about keeping other people or other things out. It's about keeping you in. Because what happens is you kind of flow outwards into your environment and you end up, you know, over-tuning to other people um, and over-tuning to, to other things when the reality is you have so much potential and creativity um, and abundance to give to the world if you give yourself a well-boundaried space. And so this chapter in particular that you're you're referencing, it starts when I was living in, in Brooklyn uh, off the L train on North 8th Street. And uh, we had a, a tiny little postage stamp of a backyard and uh, a, a very, at that point in time, uh, elderly uh, po- Polish landlady um, who, <laughs> who was... Uh, <laughs> you know, sort of reluctant to let us garden here, but we won her over in part with a, a bleeding heart bush. We were like, we're, we'll plant with beauty <laughs> right outside your window. So she lived on the ground floor and we lived right above her. And, um, <laughs> and so we, we ended up planting this garden, my roommate and I, and absolutely loved the whole experience. But we noticed that by like the end of July, the garden was like done. Like I had gone to seed, there were no more flowers and we were like, what's happening here? Like, why is it was so flourishing? And it, this was really my first time tending a garden. So I didn't know then what I know now, which is that in order to have a beautiful garden, you need to be willing to cut and wean and weed and prune and cull. You need to hold boundaries. You know, we hadn't deadheaded anything. Um, we had barely weeded anything. You know, we had just sort of let it all go. And so the garden never reached its full potential. So now I know, for example, that if you keep snipping back a bush of basil, like that basil will really flourish and grow like big and wide and continue to produce all season long. If you just let the plant go, it'll grow leggy and long and go to seed by the end of July. And so the, the, the invitation here is to see your life as a garden. And you are the gardener and, and you are here to, to create beauty within that life. And the way that you do that is by creating boundaries that, you know, there, there's a beauty to wild spaces, of course. And there's a difference between a garden and a wild space. And if you want to garden, you have to be willing to make those boundaries, to put down borders, to weed, to, you know, cut back vigorous growers so that gives other plants space. You have to make these decisions all the time in order to create the beauty and diversity that is a garden. And so for other sensitive people, I like to remind them your life is a garden and you're the gardener and you are the one who just gets to decide what grows in it. 
and you know the the word uh, garden originally comes from a from an old word garden um middle english word which which meant a a walled enclosure and so you know, and, and even the word paradise originally meant a, a walled garden. And so just this reminder that setting these boundaries, setting these walls, um, it, it's it's not about cutting yourself off. It's it's about learning how to create this paradise, really, for yourself here on earth. And ultimately, this I, I think, this greater paradise on earth. Because every person being their full, authentic, true selves um, is what brings the the ultimate amount of beauty and possibility to the co-creation that is, that is this planet. There's this really beautiful Mm -hmm. passage um, in your book that I liked as well, where you said boundary making isn't a selfish endeavor. It's a life giving reorientation for the earth. I just thought that was so beautiful. Yeah. You know, just from that perspective, so much of the, um, Ecological harm that we've seen happen, um, especially in the past handful, you know, past Mm -hmm. few hundred years, so much of that has come out of not knowing good boundaries (laughs) of, of thinking, you know, I can, I can, you know, strip mine this place, um, because I basically, because I, I, I don't understand the, the boundaries, um, that should exist in, in a healthy relationship between two beings or between a multitude of beings. And so you learning how to have boundaries is really you reintroducing the, the life giving properties of boundaries back into humanity's relationship with the living world. So I would love to switch gears just slightly and have you talk a little bit about your business, One Willow Apothecaries, and how that endeavor came to be. I started One Willow after I graduated from herbal school here in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And, you know, at the time, I just kept having this message come over and over again. That was it's like, start a business, start a business. And I was so reluctant to do it. I was like, I don't want to start a business. That sounds like a lot of work, you know? And this was really before the the age of social media. And so I didn't have a lot of role models of, you know, entrepreneurs who were going about it in a way that, um, that, that resonated with me. You know, we're going about it in a way that was, you know, responsible and, you know, heartfelt and... Um, you know, slow paced, and, you know, all, all, all the things now that I feel like we have a lot of great role models for in, in large part due to um, social media and, and the ability to, to be exposed to this around the world. So at the time I thought, I don't want to be an entrepreneur. Like I'm not that kind of person, you know, <laughs> and, but it just kept coming back. And so I, I, I finally conceded. I was like, okay. So I started, I started with a line of herbal products and I would sell these herbal products at gatherings and farmers markets and, um, and, you know, I really enjoyed it on a certain level, but I also knew that it, it wasn't like my deepest passion creating this whole line of herbal products. And so at some point I decided, okay, like, you know, I, I, for years I had other jobs while I worked on One Willow, you know, I, it was not an overnight success. And I, <laughs> um, but at some point I decided a few years down the line, I said, okay, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of getting really tired of making all these different herbal products. I, I know there's a lot of people out there who are really passionate about this. I should let them do this and, you know, ask myself, what am I really passionate about? And I was like, you know, what I love making is flower essences. 
I love flower essences. Flower essences are, are a vibrational remedy made by floating flowers in water underneath sunlight and then taking that water and drop dosages. So it's similar to homeopathic in that way. And you know, I thought, okay, I'm just going to start making flower essences and, you know, flower essence and stone combinations. And, it, you know, it's a little out there for the time. I was like, you know, this is a little out there, but, you know, this is what I'm passionate about. So if it works, it works. We'll see. And it was amazing to see that my business actually started to take off once I started doing what I really loved and what mm. I was really passionate about because it, my my heart came through. And, you know, from them, for that point on, that was just kind of my, my, my GPS. I was like, okay, I, I do what, what I feel called to do, what I love, what I'm passionate about. And that will draw in the people who I'm meant to be working with instead of creating things that I thought people wanted um, or that I thought would do well. So yeah, it's been a really amazing journey to just see how that adage um, really works out. Um, and, you know, I, I, I have a, I have an offering called Business as a Spiritual Journey on my website because I've had so many people over the years ask me, you know, like, how, how did you create your business? How did that work? And and the thing that I, I did business consultation with people for a long time. And the thing that I told people over and over again is like, business is a spiritual journey. You know, your business basically is your spirit guide and your business is going to be very invested in your growth. So yes, you're going to come up against a lot of blocks and a lot of challenges and you know things are going to be hard because this is an avenue in which you are here to learn and grow on a soul level. That it's not um, secondary to your spiritual journey. It, it will become the heart of your spiritual journey. And I wish someone had told me that when I began because I remember thinking, I don't want to be an entrepreneur. Like, I'm spiritual. <laughs> you know? And now I'm like, oh yeah, duh, like spiritual entrepreneurship, like it, <laughs> it, it, it is a thing, you know? And, and so, yeah, when you approach business as a spiritual journey, it's like everything has the ability to just like amplify your, your learning and your growth and, and help you really see the gifts that you're here to bring this world. So then did you begin kind of teaching after the flower essences or was that kind of woven in? I from didn't the start. start teaching right off the bat. I think it took me like a, a few years to start teaching at the time. I was working for Juliet Blankaspor at the Chestnut School of Herbal Medicine. Um, I was her administrative assistant. We were running the school together and she would get these um, requests to teach and you know, she would be like, I don't have, I don't have time for this or I don't have the capacity for it. And she, she started being like, well, why don't you do it? And I was like, me? I was like, no, I, I can't do that. Like I'm just a few years out of herbal school. And, and she said something to me then that just really has stuck with me forever. She was like, you don't have to know everything. You know, you just have to be a few steps ahead of whoever is in the class. You know, you just, you just have to know a few things that you're passionate about. And and that really helped me because I thought, okay, I have to be an expert if I'm going to teach anything. And she was like, no, you don't. You know, you, you mm -hmm. just have to, to, to know a handful of things that you are just feel really good about and really passionate about. And, you know, be honest about where you're at in the journey. Someone asks you a question you don't know, say, I don't know. <laughs> and so that's where I started, you know, <laughs> and I, I started out teaching more straightforward herbal type classes, um, 
you know, looking at plant uses and, and, you know, how to make medicine, things like that, how to wild craft. And, you know, over time though, I, I realized what I'm really passionate about is helping people to make these connections with themselves um, and their inner gifts and, and their inner healing of journey through connecting with nature. So, you know, over time I, I developed courses that felt like they were really in alignment with my heart, like intuitive plant medicine. Like I was like, I want to help people make this intuitive, direct connection with nature themselves. And, and, and again, it was sort of a similar thing where I noticed that those classes really took off, like beyond my wildest imagination, you know, that, that course I mentioned intuitive plant medicine, it was the first course I'd offered online. And this was, you know, this was still kind of when online courses were like kind of just getting started in a certain way. And and I just wasn't sure how successful it was going to be. And, you know, I was like, it'd be great. I was like, okay, it'd be, it'd be awesome if I got like 50 people to, to sign up for this. Like, that'd be amazing, you know? And I, and I released it. And I think that first year it was like, I got over 600 people who signed up and I just, I was so blown away. I had no idea that I, and also I was not prepared <laughs> for that at all. Like I did not have like, I didn't have anyone else working for me. I was trying to do the website myself. It was, it was an interesting journey. I'll say that. Um, wow. But I think it just, for me, was just showed me again and again. I was like, okay, yes. When you follow your heart and you do what matters to you and what you're passionate about, like you will find the people who are also passionate about that thing. And, and yeah, so that's, that's, really where my, my teaching journey began. And, you know, I, I ended up going into to other realms of teaching. I ended up studying, um, you know, stone medicine and, and dream work and um, intuitive development. And so, you know, those are all things that I, I teach and that I've woven into to my offerings. But it's it's an amazing thing when you really just give yourself permission to create what is truly at the center of your heart and to see just what um, what wondrous things can happen from that space? Mm. I I took your um, herbs for the other world course, which was so much fun and so magical. And so, as we head into autumn here, head into fall, would you be open to sharing a little bit of wisdom about working with herbs and the other world, and perhaps some thoughts about the ancestors? Plants have this ability to bridge realms. They do it naturally. And the other world, that word the other world comes from Celtic cultures. And you know, from, a, from a Celtic perspective, there is another world that lives alongside this world. And that other world is, um, it's actually, it's bigger than this world. It's richer than this world. It's, it's the place where the fairies live and the unseen beings where the ancestors are. It's, it's where we go when we pass on. Um, and yet it exists here on this planet and it's just on the other side of the veil. It's available to us. And we are here to learn how to be in relationship with this other world while being in form, while being embodied. And I know a lot of people feel very, very called to this concept of of the other world especially people who are of celtic descent because it's it's very empowering to know that your ancestors you know had had a concept had a cosmology um of of interacting with the spirit realm 
um, and the unseen beings, and that you you can work within you know your own your own ancestral spiritual traditions to make these profound spiritual connections. And so plants are you know they're natural bridges into the other world. Of course, some plants very literally open our perception of the other world, you know, helping us to to glimpse into these other realms of existence, plants and and fungi. And um obviously plants have been used as, you know, ethnogens and and um psychedelic expanders for a long period of time to help us perceive this other world. But we we don't need to take a, a psychedelic in order to experience this other world. We have the capacity within us at all times. And there are certain plants that are just historically known um, for opening that natural gateway of inner perception. So you mentioned herbs for the other world, my course. So I, I talk about a, a handful of different plants um, in that course, but I would be remiss if right now on the call I didn't talk about hawthorn because we're going into the fall season and hawthorn is so emblematic of the fall season. So hawthorn is a it's a small thorny tree that produces flowers around Beltane, which is the the Celtic holiday of of fertility and um, welcoming of summer that takes place between the spring equinox and the summer solstice. And then it fruits with its red berries around Samhain, which is the, the midpoint between the autumn equinox and the winter solstice. And uh, we know Samhain in American culture as Halloween. Um, so that's exa- that's where Halloween came from, was this celebration of Samhain. And, and so the Hawthorne would be these gatekeepers for these two most liminal times of the year. Samhain in particular being a time when it was, when the spirits walked abroad, when you could commune with the other world, when you could talk with your ancestors, when magic was made possible. And, you know, Hawthorne was known as the fairy tree. In some lore, they talk about if you fell asleep under a Hawthorne, you would be transported to the fairy realm. And so to be very careful with how you interact with Hawthorne because you you can step in and out of the worlds just by interacting with this plant. And what I find really fascinating is that we, we know um, today, because there's been a lot of of clinical studies with with Hawthorne, we know today that Hawthorne is a, a really powerful cardiotonic. So it it nourishes and supports the heart um, as a muscle. And why I find this fascinating is that in so many traditional cultures around the world, the heart is known as our organ of perception. That it's not our brain that that helps us open the field of perception. It's the heart. And the heart is what perceives magic. So if we want to perceive magic and connect to the other world, all we need to do is drop into our hearts and interact with the living world from that space. And that's exactly what Hawthorne does. It helps us feel safe enough to be within our hearts. One of the the signatures of, of Hawthorne is the flowers and the berries, of course, but also its thorns. And so from this perspective, looking at Hawthorne from this folkloric lens, we see that Hawthorne helps us feel safe enough to be inside of our hearts because we have the protection, the boundaries that we need in order to be in that space. Hawthorne's known as a, a grief assuager, so it's often put into formulas for grief or or loss or heartache. And so it's it's a very powerful plant for anyone who wants to open this connection with the other world through opening the portal of perception that is their heart. 
So Asia, do you have any upcoming projects that you're excited about right now? So my book just came out this summer, um, which is uh, Mirrors in the mm-hmm. Earth. And and uh, this autumn just released a, a companion to the book, which is a, a series of guided meditations that um, dovetail with each chapter in the book. So that offering is, is called mm-hmm. uh, the Earth Mirror Meditations. And that was just really fun for me to create because the each chapter is such a journey in the book. And so to be able to create a guided journey that would take people deeper into the experience of each chapter and so many of the things that we talked about today, you know, boundaries, being in one's own world, honoring one's sensitivity, connecting to the other world. So um, that that's available and something that just came out that I'm very excited about. And uh, also this, this winter, I'm excited to start offering some live classes again. It's been... Um, several years since I've done that. I just had a baby um, at the beginning of 2022. And so I kind of took a hiatus from live teaching for a while. And so I'm mm-hmm. excited to step back into live teaching um, to be to be coming out with some some new content that that may or may not be revolving more around um, ancestor work and uh, c- connecting to, you know, more of these um, sacred spots on the earth and uh, Celtic cosmologies. And so I'm excited to see what's going to to come out of this next year. But it's for me, that's just um, it's it's fun to feel like I have the, the space again to to step back into leading live workshops. And these will be these will be online. So if that's something folks are interested in, then, um, yeah, they can follow along and, and see what I come out with. And so, Asia, where is the best place for listeners, for folks to follow along with your work? You can find me on my website, which is onewillowapothecaries.com, and that one is spelled out O-N-E. You can also just type in asiasuler.com. That'll take you to the same place. And I'm also on social media. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube under my name, which is Asia Suler. so much listeners and asia for joining us today on magic and alchemy a podcast from tamed wild again we're kate Ballou and Kristen lisenby you can find us online at k8 Ballou and at east and alchemy send us all of your questions comments or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram, at Tamed Wild, or on the blog, tamedwild.com, previously known as magicandalchemy.com. Tune into next week's episode for another magical discussion. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be, or something better. Until next time.